want to be remembered as a wise leader who was always out to help people, to support people in need without expecting any form of credit. This is Before It's Too Late. I'm your host, Christian Suzelm. Let's learn together what matters most in life. In today's episode, we are talking to a special guest from Ghana, Lieutenant Colonel Alex Ken. He currently serves as Deputy Operations Officer at the Ghana Army and Africa and is also delivering international UN peacekeeping advice to the chief of his army. His specialty is conflict solving, a skill that is becoming increasingly important at a time when global societies need to redefine what it means to be human. I was very intrigued by his approach towards conflict solving, which is deploying wisdom. This is also why he is studying philosophy next to his main job. No society can ever avoid conflict. So, how do we address that? Alex, who has been on conflict-solving missions in South Sudan, Mali and the Democratic Republic of Congo, explains in our great conversation how his team identifies the root cause of the conflict and then bases their communication on wisdom. Whenever you apply wisdom, there are high chances of getting solutions that each party is willing to accept, he states. Alex also shares with us insights in the field of industrial security, a sector in which he's active too. Later on, you will hear from him about how he wants to be remembered. And it's not really surprising that the legacy Alex creates has something to do with being wise. Also, you will hear his profound advice for each and everyone seeking purpose and meaning. I'm excited to have you as our today's guest on Before It's Too Late, Lieutenant Colonel Alex Ken. Hello, Alex. Great to have you as my guest on Before It's Too Late today. I'm so happy to come on this program and uh, I hope to learn and share a lot from you. Oh, I'm absolutely sure, Alex, you have a lot of stuff we can learn from. So... On your LinkedIn profile, it says Lieutenant Colonel Alex Ken, and under your name, I found the words conflict, peace, security, leadership, strategy, humanitarian, and gender. So when I saw this, I thought to myself, this man must be focusing on the important things, on things that really matter. What's on top of your list right now, Alex? I have been privileged to find myself in the military. And uh, as you know, the military is an opportunity to serve. It's full of traditions. It's full of a lot of new things. Almost every day you have new challenges that you have to handle. So it's a very interesting job. You meet so many people both in the military and in the public sector. So in my job as a military officer, currently I am the deputy command operations officer. So all I do is operation. It's either we are planning, we are organizing something, trying to control what is in motion, coordinating with other entities that we work with, 
and then we report the things we do. Then over a period, we have to review. So we have a reflection to guide us in the future operations. And I've been doing this for the past one year and about four months. Before then, I was doing training at our staff college and it was something I really enjoy doing. Now, what is about my job that I like so much is going out to the field with a commander. From time to time, we are required to go to the field and see what is practically being done, have first-time experience, so that we can appreciate some key challenges, both logistics, operational, and administrative logistics. And then we come back, and those that we can handle at our level, we do that. If it is beyond us, we push it to the next headquarters. So this is the main work that I do in my job as a military officer. Again, as you already know, I am a PhD student with the University of uh, Southeastern in Florida. Unfortunately, I should have been in Florida, but for COVID, things have delayed. So I have to combine work and school. And then besides that, I do security consulting and training. From time to time, I do public speaking. From time to time, I'm called to speak to people on people and professional development. And then finally, I'm a volunteer for the United States Institute for Democracy and Human Rights. We do more of human rights advocacy and girls' education. Sometimes, because of my job, I'm not allowed to be in the forefront. So we do the research work, and then those who can go out to talk to the public, they do that. So in a nutshell, this is what occupies my 24 hours. Wow. So that sounds like a huge variety of meaningful jobs you have, Alex. I would like to dig deeper in each of them. <laughs> so <laughs> let's start with your PhD studies you're just doing in Florida right now. I understand you are in the process of becoming a doctor of philosophy and getting a PhD in conflict analysis. I'm curious, when societies or armies look at conflict analysis and conflict resolution through a lens of philosophy, what helpful tools or approaches do they get? So I find this combination between philosophy and conflict resolution really interesting. Tell us more about that. All right. As you know, no society can ever avoid conflict. So conflict is with us, whether you are Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, no matter the group of people that you have at a time, there will always be conflict. So the next thing is, how do we address that? Sometimes the people involve themselves, if they are given the necessary guidance and tools, can handle the conflict. And depending on the level of the conflict, whether it is a couple or it is between two communities or it is between two countries, 
the intensity of the conflict will always decide how it's supposed to be managed. And there are several tools of managing conflicts. There is one that is common to a lot of people, that is the, the conflict tree, where you look at the conflict by first looking at the root cause. So you go to the root of the, of the tree. And this could be so many issues. And then you have the main cause, which is the stem of the tree. And then the leaves of the tree becomes the consequences of the conflict. So, if this is the basic understanding of a conflict, or the basic way of looking at a conflict, let's bring in the philosophy aspect. Philosophy is the pursuit of wisdom, the study of wisdom. And anywhere you apply wisdom, in most cases, you get results because... Wisdom is, you look at things from the deeper end, from different perspective. So once you bring in the study of wisdom into trying to solve any form of conflict, there's a high possibility of getting solutions that each party is likely to accept. Because if you look at philosophy or if you want to study the people who were very good in the things they did. If you look at the best U.S. president, most of them like the study of philosophy, not the academic part of it, but trying to study the people who are the fathers of philosophy, trying to study them the way they, they handled the challenges that came their way. So if you bring the study of philosophy into conflict management, you are most likely to get solutions that the parties in the conflict will accept. Wow, this is so powerful, Alex. This is just great. I think there's a lot we as societies can learn from that approach. Would you be able to give us an example where you maybe have applied such wisdom in any case? Great. Um, I have been privileged to have gone to some conflict-affected countries. I have been to South Sudan. I have been to Mali. I have been to the Democratic Republic of Congo for three times. And I have been to Leone. All these are conflicts and violent environment, but very hostile, especially in Mali. Now, in this environment, where the UN is deployed, you have so many people doing so many things. Because in a typical country like that, so many things don't work. The state institutions that we know, they don't work. So the UN system, you have military people working with the police, uh, working with the military, You have police working with the state police. And then you have civilians working with all the agencies of this country. They are all working on specific programs aimed at building capacity. And then you get to a point where elections are conducted. Now people take lead in managing the country. And then following that, capacity building is done. Then with time, the UN withdraws. Now, I was privileged to be in, in 
Democratic Republic of Congo in a capacity as a military observer. The job of the military observer is to report ceasefire violations in the area you have been deployed. So anything that you see that is against human rights, uh, any of the agreement that the conflict parties have decided not to do, anything you see, you have to report. And you are supposed to conduct patrols to sometimes remote areas, sometimes you go and stay three, four days, staying with the public, trying to find out some of their needs, basic needs that leadership needs to know, and so. Now, many of these patrols, I had opportunity to speak to rebel leaders, people who have been demobilized, people who have been promised certain things that they have not been met for several other reasons. It was our job to tell them effort that is being done and why we think that it is better for them to wait than to go back fighting each other. This is where the wisdom comes in. So you apply your wisdom from books, the practical experiences you've had from other peacekeeping missions, and then you are supposed to learn the history and culture of this conflict whilst you are there. So you apply all these things together. Communicate well. Of course, language is so powerful. Communicate well such that they buy into you. And then you achieve your objective. So with time, you would have spoken to so many of these people. You've given them hopes. You've given them aspirations. You've told them that things will be well. However, it takes time for things to be well. So these are some of the occasions that I had to apply wisdom. Now, let's go to South Sudan. I was privileged to be in South Sudan 2015-2016, from February to the following year. And I was the chief operations officer of the battalion or the Ghanaian contingent. Our job was to protect internally displaced persons. There was a camp of over 100,000 internally displaced people and the Ghanaian contingent and the Mongolian contingent, we were responsible for the security of these people. Now, these are people who have left their homes, their natural environment, and they have come to the United Nations protection camps. They were restricted. They don't go out. Almost everything they need, the UN tried to provide them whilst they are in the camp. We were supposed to ensure that no outside threats comes to harm them or even within. They don't clash as a group. Now, the challenge was that these are people not from the same village. They are coming from different villages, sometimes different tribes. And the South Sudan situation is more tribal-based. The Dinkas and the Nues. And then you have these tribes in the camp. And you are responsible for their protection. So as part of our outreach programs, we do go into the camps and speak to them. That is where the application of wisdom comes in. So you go back into history, try and give them other areas where there have been conflicts, other areas you have been privileged to be 
how things worked and how the country is now back and everything is normal. We do some, uh, sometimes some form of training. So in all these interactions, this is where we apply wisdom and it works. Ah. It works very, very, very well. Ah, Alex, I love listening to you. You really contribute strongly to making the world a better place. And this transformative energy we need more than ever, really more than ever. And Alex, I wonder, where do you deep down inside of yourself take the motivation and wisdom and resilience, I guess, to keep working in this difficult field, which seems like an uphill struggle also. I mean, if we all read the news and listen to the news every day, there's more, much more attention paid to what's going wrong than to the conflicts that have been resolved to all the conflicts that have even been avoided, maybe. I wonder how that doesn't frustrate you and where you draw your energy from to keep going. So before conflict worker, you have a group of people who will live together peacefully, sometimes for so many years. And then based on leadership decisions or based on groups within these groups, certain events unfold over a number of years and then people just get fed up and say, okay, look, enough is enough. We are going to kill as many as we can. We are going to hurt as many as we can. This is out of frustration. And in most cases, it takes a long time. It's, people would have accumulated, there's something called a conflict depth. <laughs> the conflict <laughs> depth <laughs> would have gone so high And it gets to a point, people become frustrated and you think they are not human. They are. So, now conflict occurs. People kill each other. People are displaced. People lose properties. And then, in most cases, what I've observed, the parties would, through negotiation and mediation, agree to talk peace. And then using the UN... The UN goes in and said, okay, we are going to deploy peacekeeping mission. And in a typical peacekeeping mission, you have civilian components and then a uniform component. So we go in, while the civilians are doing their part, we, the military, we are also doing our part. And it, we do so many things. We are doing patrolling to build the confidence of the populace. We go talk to them, we try to help them build some of the basic amenities that have been destroyed during the conflict, try to build their confidence, trying to give them hope and all that. Now, if you do all this, in most cases, elections are conducted, the country gets their leadership, institutions start being built. Now, things now go back. So the thought of being part of this process, that is where the fulfillment comes in. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you meet hopeless people 
who because of the work you have done, sometimes it takes time anyway, they now agree that, hey, where we are is, we don't belong there. Now let's go back and live before, live together. So if you see all this cycle and you sit back and reflect, and it's like, wow, you have been part of this cycle. That is where the motivation comes from. The work of the military is service. It's not how much money you made. It's not how many cars. It's not how, how the best place you will visit. It's a service. That sense of satisfaction, that because of your service, the lives of people have been improved. That is where the motivation is. This is so meaningful, Alex. And I'm sure the listeners can learn so much from that. You are also working in the field of security management. Yeah. And you are a certified protection officer from an organization called ASIS International. So would you tell us more about what's the state of the art right now in security management and how has it changed over the last couple of years? Security management is everything we do to protect four key things, people, properties, information, and protection. So in any form of security management setup, these are the things that are set out to be protected. Now, in the past, when we didn't know so much of the IT world, everything was physical, physical, physical. Now, if not all of our life, <laughs> about 60% of our life is online. That is a huge new threat that we have to contend with. So the change has come, one, in the use of technology for security, the use of technology for protection. And as you may agree with me, technology is not foolproof. It is human beings who sit and think and come up with all these measures. So the same human beings at the same time are always 24 hours. They're also looking for things to counter these things. So one of the trends that has come up is we have new threats and these threats are so complex. And then depending on the context, so many roles that government played as far as protecting the community or its citizens is now moving to individuals because government is burdened in so many ways especially in africa the first thing that comes in mind is finance so because of lack of finance government some traditional roles of government has now been pushed to individuals and that is huge cost most companies this kind of thing is a huge cost as far as their balance sheet is concerned And now there's more private involvement in the issue of security management. So these are the few areas that is changing and it's going to change even more in future because society has become so complex. Crime level is so high. So everybody is trying to find out how to protect his or her properties. And like I mentioned, so this is the shift Security management 
is moving to. And I'm so proud to be a member of ASIS International. It's a U.S. institution. It's, it's based in Virginia. And it's my hope that one day I'll visit the headquarters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell us more yeah. about that organization. Yes. ASIS International is, is the world-leading institution for industrial security. As far as I know, we have about 34,000 members globally. And in each country that you have people who are members, they come together to form what is called a chapter. In Ghana, we, we had one chapter until uh, last November, where now we have three chapters, one in Accra, one in Takuradi, and one in Kumasi. This institution is always coming out with research areas as far as industrial security is concerned. They have four key certifications. They have the Certified Protection, protection Professional, which I have done. They have the Certified Physical Security Professional. They have the Certified Investigation Professional. And then they've just introduced one, which is an Associate Protection Professional. These are very powerful certifications, well-recognized worldwide. So our edge my, your listeners who are interested, if they are thinking of industrial security or corporate security, they should just go to the ASIS website, become a member, and they can start studying for any of the certifications. And they have one huge event that they do every year. It's called the Global Security Exchange. When you attend that event, you'll be wowed about how industrial security, the level that it has gone. You meet so many people all over the world. You meet so many technology, so many new equipment. At the same time, they do training alongside this event. I'm here to participate in one. I'm hoping that one day I'll be able to join, but I have colleagues who have been there and the feedback is excellent. Okay, thank you. Let's go back to you personally, Alex. How would you describe your legacy that you are creating every single day with the meaningful things that you are doing? I want to be remembered as a wise leader. Now, let me just go back to the wise aspect. I know being a leader is very easy. People are either elected as leaders or they emerge as leaders either because of their age or people think they have the knowledge or people think they have the experience. But then with my study of leadership, I think people become successful leaders for the way they were assessed, with the tools that they were used to assess. But not many of them were wise. Wisdom did not reflect in some of the decisions that they took. So I want to be remembered as a leader who was wise. Now, not just a leader. A leader who influenced people positively. I mean, people that I want to be influenced should be people who are always willing to help and support people without any form of credit. So I want to be remembered as a wise leader who was always out to help people, to support people in need, 
without expecting any form of credit. So, depending on the things I'm doing now, I always try to let that reflect. Am I helping as many people as I can? How impactful it is. When I meet people today, when they leave and go, what do they remember me for? That is the kind of things I want to be remembered for. I can truly feel your humanitarian heart. And that's absolutely wonderful, Alex. So here's my last question. What's okay. your advice to each of us out there with regard of purpose and meaning that we want to create for ourselves? When you are born, you grow through coaches. So the, the people that bring you up first, if you are lucky to have your both parents, you are able to live with them up to some point, and then either you become a parent yourself or you leave because you think you are not a big person. This process, they all have huge influence on you. So at some point, you now decide what is your values, your ideologies, the things you believe are true, the things you believe are not true, the things you want to pursue. And most times it's like, oh, I want to be happy. I want to live a happy life. Yes, it's good to be, to be happy. It's good to live happy life. But for the little experience I have, I think happiness is so fragile. It happens for a short period and then it goes. Now, instead of happiness, I would advise that people out there should pursue something meaningful. Now, in the continuum of pursuing that meaningful thing, you'll be happy along the line. If this thing is really meaningful to you, then happiness will come along the way. So forget about purpose and all that. Do I have something meaningful that I am pursuing? If this thing is well-defined, then because we all crave for happiness, along the line, if it is enough meaningful to you, happiness will come your way. Hmm, Alex, that cannot get any more meaningful at the end of our conversation. Thank you so much for sharing what you're doing, what you're thinking, and most of all, sharing your wisdom that is the root of your personal tree. I'm sure we can all learn a lot from you. And thank you so much again, Alex, for being my guest today. Thank you very much. You are so grateful. And anytime you think we need to speak on any other subject, I'm available. I really enjoyed this profound conversation, and I hope you did too. For more episodes of Before It's Too Late, make sure to subscribe. If this episode spoke to you, consider sharing it with a friend or loved one you think might benefit from it. Thank you for listening.